Recall when the first COVID vaccines came out in early 2021. It turned from a scientific problem to a logistics problem, how to distribute millions of doses to Americans clamoring to get them. It fell to my next guest to coordinate the setup of 39 mass vaccination centers and 1,600 smaller centers all across the country. For this work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He's also the Region 9 Administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Robert Fenton. Mr. Fenton, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me on today. And we should say that at the moment, you're actually not the Regional 9 Administrator, but you have a new task at the White House for monkeypox. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah, Tom. So um, I've been uh, detailed over to the White House. President Biden asked me to come in and lead the nation's response to monkeypox. And in that effort, I'm coordinating uh, across not only federal agencies, primarily HHS, but to state and local agencies to help coordinate the containment control of monkeypox. Once again, you're close to the White House, close to the center of action. Does it feel a little bit like a replay of what happened during COVID or maybe not quite as pressured? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in all these events, there's obviously pressure. There is the need to coordinate across all levels of government to help people that are in need. In all these events, people need help from the government. And so to do that effectively, efficiently is what I try to do in these situations. I'd never heard of monkeypox until this came out. Is this something for which there is a vaccine at this point? I pardon my ignorance, but I'd, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, no, appreciate the question. So uh, much different than COVID and uh, uh, many people's last you know memory is COVID and they, they link viruses together. And uh, this is very different where there is a vaccine that exists. It takes a little longer to test as uh, testing is through swabs and you have to go to your doctor and and it's a very painful virus that uh, has, you know, that ends up with lesions and rashes on you. So go get tested to prevent it. Get vaccinated is the key. And then there is medication that if you do get it, that you can take. It sounds almost like shingles. It, very similar, very painful, yes. Right. And the uh, vaccine for that's no picnic, but it does keep it from coming in. So, well, let's get back to when you were doing the work on behalf of COVID or the COVID distribution of vaccines. Tell us how it worked. The vaccines came out, and then how did that get translated into 39 mass vaccination centers? Yeah, so let me first start off with, uh, I couldn't have done it without a great team of civil servants uh, from FEMA. And and FEMA is not a large organization, but a, a group of individuals that are dedicated and all year put the priority of Americans ahead of their own as they respond to disasters throughout our country. And so this was one that that staff was all in on. They knew that uh, the vaccine had just rolled out, that we just went through a change of administration, as you remember, a little bit of a rocky change. I came in as the acting administrator for FEMA, and the, the first charge the president gave me was, uh, you know, let's vaccinate all of America, especially those most at risk. And as I partnered with HHS to do that, one of the key underlying elements of this administration that exists, and I'm doing today in monkeypox is really look at equity and how do we make sure that there's equity in the services we provide. So what I did was coordinate a whole of government approach, use existing systems like the National Incident Management System and brought in multiple federal agencies to work with states and local governments to set these sites up across the country. 
And describe these sites. I guess I saw them on television because by the time I got a vaccine, you could just go into CVS and get it. But early on, there were traffic and cones and big tents and so forth. And local police had to be involved just for the, if nothing else, for traffic control. So give us a sense of how they were set up and who was actually operating them. Yeah, we set up uh, very large sites to very small sites, each having playing a critical role. And we use a lot of partnered with uh, stadiums across the country, sometimes NFL, sometimes big parking lots, partnered with Chicago Bulls in Chicago uh, in their stadium and set up these sites across the country. The first ones were in California and then set them up across the country. These are mass sites using Department of Defense, military personnel, USDA, DHS, HHS, VA to help vaccinate large numbers of individuals uh, coming through. They were able to go through in vehicles, or foot traffic. And then what we did is we used kind of a hub and spoke approach because it came, became clearly evident to us pretty quickly that if we really going to reach the equity part of the population, we need to go ahead and provide services to where they're at, not just expect them to be able to meet us. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned over the years in, in doing this is that sometimes in government, we set our systems up to help the majority of people but recognizing that maybe the most at need, the people that can't get to our services are the people we have to go reach out to. And so by having uh, these mobile vaccination sites, we were able to partner with community-based organizations, with uh, church organizations, and really go just trusted agents. Because as you remember early on, there is not a high degree of confidence in the vaccine, right? Sure. And so what we had to do is go to trusted agents uh, where we put on mobile efforts to go to individuals uh, to get them vaccinated. We're speaking with Robert Fenton. He's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program and in his regular job, Region 9 Administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. And you've been at FEMA a long time. Were there lessons learned from prior disaster situations that came to bear in the COVID distribution for vaccines? Yeah, I think there's a lot of key lessons learned from previous events to this event. Uh, it's about partnership. I think everyone wants to help and everyone wants to be integrated on that. And how do you build those partnerships across federal, state, and local government, working with the highest political leaders, in many cases, as reaching out to governors, members of Congress, to build those partnerships, whether it be across political lines, all with one priority of helping people and having a whole of America uh, response. And so you really need to integrate everyone into that and give them a role in doing that to be successful in in these type of missions. And so how do I bring in the community-based organizations? How do I bring in the nonprofits? How do I bring in private sector and then governmental entities? And how do we all work together in one team, one fight through a unit of effort to accomplish that goal? That's from a leadership standpoint, what I did was really focus on that and how to bring everyone together into one effort to uh, meet this need. And as a longtime career civil servant who now twice has been called up by White Houses to deal with things, what's your advice for people that do get into that situation such that they can retain the objectivity and the neutrality they had as public servants, as career people? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of key things that I rely on. One is the relationships that you have through your organization. The team is critical to the success 
of carrying out the mission of the organization. And so building strong relationships and maintaining those and having those for this are important. Two is is really providing clear communication and direction during these events. And, and uh, a lot of challenges are sometimes in the communication arena. So how do you communicate effectively as a leader is, is critical to this and, and to being able to carry out uh, these missions. And then lastly, I think one of the things that I, that I do is allow people to go do their job. And I delegate a lot of responsibility down with that clear guidance and allow those you know, to use uh, their ability to make decisions and to be able to carry out the mission. So given a lot of authority and pushing it down and, and letting people use that to respond. One of the things that I had a, a leader tell me one time is to run a big operation like this, we need to make probably about 1,000 to 10,000 decisions today. And I'm not going to make 10,000 decisions a day. You know, I'll make three or four, but then the next group down from me, each one of them have to make five or six. And the next group down from them, have to make 10 or 12 decisions. So allowing everyone to participate in the decision-making and have a voice is critical. Sounds like when you do get into a White House situation, it's important to remember where you came from and not worry about so much where you are now because that'll still be there when you're gone and you won't be a part of it anymore. Yeah, it's true. And, uh, you know, I think there's some key things that you need to have. And in FEMA, our core values are compassion, respect, integrity, fairness. And, and those are the things I try to keep with me and keep me grounded no matter where I'm at in the organization, no matter what job I'm doing. And by the way, for monkeypox, will this be a mass vaccination situation again, or is the exposure limited such that everyone in the world doesn't have to feel like they need to be vaccinated as soon as possible? Yeah, right now in monkeypox, we're focused on the highest risk population. That's primarily men having sex with men, about 94% of the people affected come into that category. And there's about 1.6 million people that we're really focused on based on data we have from PrEP, HIV, and, and other programs the federal government has to vaccinate those first. Then there's other groups that potentially could come into this, primarily a, a sexually transmitted disease, but not only a sexually transmitted disease. So we need to be careful that it doesn't spill over into other populations. And we need to start with vaccine that most highest risk population first, but then have the capability to increase. Another big important thing here is public education outreach. So we make people aware of what monkeypox looks like to go in and get tested, to get treatment. And then if you're at risk, get vaccinated ahead of time. Robert Fenton is a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. He was recently appointed by the White House as National Monkeypox Response Coordinator. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Tom, and I appreciate being nominated by the Sammies uh, for this prestigious award. And uh, congratulations to all those others that got nominated, too. So thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Get your shot of the Federal Drive daily. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. 
And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? 
You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.